The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So in continuing the thread of the talks I've been giving on Tuesday mornings, uh, the topic of these last few weeks has been, when I've been here, has been um, wise effort. And wise effort is really uh, that set of um, uh, tools or directions for us to cultivate qualities that help us to move towards happiness, towards peace, towards ease in our lives, and to let go of those things that are in the way of that. That could be a really simple way of of, uh, describing wise effort, that it's uh, supporting those qualities, it's effort in the direction of those qualities that help us to become happier and to let go of, relinquish the qualities that um, keep us caught, keep us struggling, keep us... um, wrapped into uh, patterns and habits of greed and aversion and confusion. And it, this takes this quality of, um, of wise effort or this practice of wise effort takes a, um, a wholesome quality. One of the wholesome qualities that we're encouraged to cultivate is a kind of a resolve to cultivate these wholesome qualities. And so resolve itself is a wholesome quality when it's directed towards certain things. And since today is New Year's Eve and tomorrow is New Year's Day and resolution, New Year's resolutions is something that tends to be part of our culture, I thought I would explore this quality of resolve and what kinds of resolves support us on our path. We can think of our, you know, our journey, our path as a kind of a journey. And um, we need to know where we're going. We need to know the direction we're taking. And we can think of res- this, the resolves that the Buddha encourage us, encourages us to aim towards as being kind of the direction of the journey. And yet what's so interesting about the direction of the journey This is something I've seen kind of repeated in the the Buddhist teachings. The direction of the journey is the same as the journey. There's just not, there's not much of a, there's not a, there's not a difference that the teachings point us to. The goal is peace. The aim is peace, a peaceful mind, a peaceful heart. And the definition of that peace is one who has let go of clinging. And the practice or the way that we get to that is by practicing letting go of clinging. To get to peace, we practice peace. To get to um, a kind heart, we practice kindness. And so the goal and the path are not so different. And so the aim or the direction of these resolves, these resolutions that the Buddha points us to, is not just like something happening in the future. It's not something that is, is just out there somewhere that we're aiming towards. It's how we are now. These resolves are something that we live. There's a particular um, sutta that kind of highlights four resolves that support us on our journey. So we can think of these maybe as, maybe we can pick up one of these as our New Year's resolution. The, the four resolves he points to is to, to, to not neglect wisdom, to preserve the truth, to cultivate relinquishment, and to train for peace. And these four are actually connected. You could probably pick up one of them and you'd end up pulling in the others. 
But he starts with not neglecting wisdom. So let's start there. Well, actually, I'll say a few things about resolve first. Resolve first. Um, if you're like me, um, I've made many New Year's resolutions in my life, and only a few of them have I actually kept. Um, and I think part of it is how we hold resolves or how we don't hold them, maybe. That, um, you know, we think of it as just something that, like, okay, I'm going to do this thing, and we say it to ourselves, we maybe say it to a few friends, and then we forget about it. But as I said earlier, these resolves actually have to be lived. They have to be lived every moment. And so when we connect to a resolve, especially something like training for peace, this is not something that we um, just say, oh, I'm going to train for, for peace, and then don't think about it every, again, ever again. It comes back to what's happening here in the moment. Am I training for peace right now? Am I choosing peace over non-peace right now? Am I choosing wisdom over confusion right now? Am I choosing letting go of the things that, relinquishing the things that make me confused, angry? Am I choosing that as a possibility? Maybe not. I mean, with relinquishment, it's an interesting piece. Um, um, relinquishing some, the relinquishment is relinquishing those things that are in the way of peace, basically. In relinquishing those things that are in the way of peace, those are those qualities of mind that confuse us, that make us tight, that make us angry or um, greedy. And we can't often simply say, I mean, it's, it's, it's a rare thing that can happen. It can happen at times when we recognize, wow, I'm being really angry right now. Maybe I can stop being angry. Maybe I can let go of that anger. Sometimes we can do that. But more often, we just recognize that we're angry. But the relinquishment here that I think is pointed to in this um, cultivating relinquishment is to not buy into or not pick up that anger and act on it. And so the relinquishment, we could say, is to refrain from acting on those states of mind that take us in the direction of... That would be our practice. That would be our moment-to-moment practice. When we notice that we're angry, to, not, to refrain from acting on that anger, but not to repress it. Not to say, I'm not angry, not to try to pretend I'm not angry. It's a real delicate balance to, to recognize, oh, this is anger arising. The, the, the holding of that with mindfulness is a form of relinquishment. It's a relinquishing that if, when we are aware of anger or any other kind of uh, constricted state, when we're aware of it with mindfulness, it is a form of relinquishment. It's a relinquishing the usual relationship to anger of believing it, of buying into it, of of following through on it. And so the 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 resolves, the the resolves that he's pointing to are things that we need to connect with every moment. We can't just say, okay, sometime in the future I'll be peaceful, or sometime in the future I will uh I'll be able to relinquish anger. Every moment we look at what's happening now. And this is the wisdom that he encourages us not to neglect. The sutta that that describes these four resolves gives a very long teaching on the wisdom part of this. And I'm not going to go through the entire thing, but I'm going to just summarize it briefly. There's a lot of different ways wisdom is talked about in the teachings, and he kind of aims at one in this particular sutta. That is to, um, uh, to recognize our bodies are, are made of the same things that are in the universe. This is a this is a piece of the of the wisdom that that and and it's it's um it's it's pointing in this direction because 
it's basically, you know, that we, we are made of earth, we are made of water. I mean, in the, in the Buddha's time, the earth, air, fire, and water were the kind of elemental aspects of um, the world. Those were the, the kind of irreducibles, is my understanding. And now we know that there are other irreducible or not irreducible. I mean, it all seems to transmute. But, but there are carbon atoms and um, uh, hydrogen atoms, and those make water. And there's, uh, you know, other silicon and all kinds of different, you know, there's elements. And our bodies are made of those elements that are in the earth, that are in the universe. They're no different. And they come, they come from those elements and they'll be returned to those elements when we die. And so he encourages us to reflect on this aspect of our, of our bodies. That it is just like the earth. Just like water. The water inside of us is no different than the water in the oceans. The, uh, the air that's in our bodies is the same air and will be. It, it, it moves in and out, right? I and mean, it's like, it doesn't belong to us. It's just air. The temperature element, it's just heat. It's just coolness. It doesn't belong to us. It's just elements. Carl Sagan had a, I wish I had the quote here. I don't have it here. Carl Sagan had a reflection about the elemental nature of our bodies. And he said that all of the heavier elements in our bodies, um, you know, the, the metals and the uh, carbon and all of, the, all of those heavier metals, they were born, every single heavy um, element in the uh, periodic table, was created in a star. Every single molecule that we are made of was forged inside of some star. He said, we are literally star stuff. The the, the physicality of our bodies doesn't belong to us. It's just part of of the universe. And this is what the Buddha encourages us to reflect on, that these elements that we experience, this is a wisdom, the the not neglecting wisdom, he says we should reflect on this. We should reflect that our, the earth element is not me, is not mine, is not who I am. It is the same as the earth element that's out there, outside of me. The water element is not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. It's the same as the water element. And so he encourages us to do this kind of reflection. This is a piece of not neglecting wisdom. And then it goes a little bit deeper, because this part of wisdom is really, um, it's using our minds, it's using our intelligence, it's, it's, help, it's, it's reflecting on our bodies in this way. Then he goes a little bit further and encourages us to recognize that these bodies are conditioned and to point to the experiential level of, ex- of, of experience. That, that the, and in, the, um, in some of the teachings, they point to the earth element being experienced as hardness or solidity or density or weight. The air element being experienced as movement the water element being experienced as fluidity, as flow, as maybe the moisture on our skin when we have tears or perspiration or the, the slipperiness inside of our mouths, that's water element. And then um, fire, just the temperature of, of things, the, all of these things at an experiential level that we start to touch into the experience level the moment-to-moment experience level, the here and the now of this body. So that is, is another piece of the wisdom to begin to touch into the experience level and reflect on this experience too is not mine. 
It is just experience coming and going. Because it is conditioned, he says. The condition, the, 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 the sensations of heat and coolness, for instance, are conditioned based on the temperature of the room and how many clothes we have on and a variety of things. And so uh, that, that it's, it's changing, it's impermanent, it's just a flow of sensation, of experience. And likewise with um, even solidity. I mean, there is, there is, um, you know, there's something here. <laughs> you know, this body is here. There are bones inside this body. They're pretty solid. But are these bones mine? Are they, are they permanent? And again, a, a little bit of a reflection can help us to recognize, no, we can know. This body will live, you know, a hundred years, maybe a little longer, probably less. And when the body dies, the elements will return to the earth. And so, are these bones mine? They're conditioned based on this being, having life in this moment. And so this, this encouragement about not neglecting wisdom points to noticing uh, our elemental nature, that it is not ours, that it's the same as what's out there in the world, recognizing the conditioned nature of our experience. And then also begins to, he also begins to point to, uh, in the wisdom side of, of things, he begins to particularly point to um, the, the knowing of experience. So there's the physicality, but another big part of our humanness is that we know what's happening. And he says, in particular here, there's one piece that we need to become clearly aware of is that when there is pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experience, we need to be aware of that. And that again, that is conditioned. So so the in every moment of experience, there is consciousness awareness, recognizing not only the physical aspect of the experience, but also whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And in this wisdom teaching, he says, we should know when something is pleasant as being pleasant and recognize that that pleasantness is conditioned, that it will, the pleasantness will change in dependence on conditions, and therefore it is not worth clinging to. It is not worth trying to uh, control or to have or to own or to keep because it can't be, actually. So it's, it's d- just the, the flow of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The Buddha encourages us to recognize that as another aspect of this wisdom. And so this... Um, Training, actually, so it's not neglecting wisdom, is a form of moment-to-moment practice. Whenever we are caught in thoughts about the past or future, we are neglecting this understanding of, oh, this body, this mind, is just a conditioned phenomenon. Just as a... Munindraji, one of Joseph's teachers, used to say, empty phenomena rolling on. It is just a tumbling on. It is not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. It's just stuff, star stuff, animated. That's what this is. This understanding, it's not just to understand it as star stuff. I mean, that's I think it's kind of cool to understand us as star stuff. That seems kind of cool to me. But, but um, the motivation or the, uh, the reasoning behind this understanding is that the, the Buddha was interested in helping us find our way to peace. And this wisdom that he describes here helps us to recognize that, that, our, that our familiar way of dealing with this star stuff, of trying to control, to manipulate, to hold on to certain kinds of star stuff, to get rid of other kinds of star stuff, that that whole process 
is um, a project that's destined to create suffering. And so the, the, because it's changing, because it doesn't exist any um, as stable phenomena, it really can't be held to. And so the, the understanding of wisdom here, the, the training that he's encouraging us and not neglecting wisdom, helps our minds to begin to recognize it's not worth clinging to. Whatever is happening is not worth clinging to. Now that's sometimes hard to intellectually understand that nothing is worth clinging to because our, that's a for, as a form of delusion, a kind of a way in which we have um, navigated our lives. It's like through clinging, we have found our way to little pockets of happiness through holding on to something or um, you know, controlling something or manipulating something. We have found our way to these little pockets of happiness at times. And that's basically that those little pockets of happiness are what we think is happiness. And yet the wisdom of the Buddha points us to there's di- different levels or different layers of happiness. Or, um, and, and that that kind of happiness that comes from getting something, from holding on to something, from grasping on something. And he acknowledges that there is a kind of happiness there. But it is a kind of happiness that contains the seeds of its own unhappiness. Because we're holding on to something and whatever we're holding on to, whether it is a thing or an idea or somebody's opinion about us or constructing something in the world, uh, that is destined to change. Because it's star stuff, it's, it's, it's destined to change. And so the, the grasping to it is destined to... Uh, fail at some point. That as that, that thing or idea or view falls apart, we won't be able to hold on to it. And that is where the suffering happens, is trying to hold on to something that is falling apart. The kind of continual, trying to put it back together or to uh, hold on to something that is gone. One person describes describes the suffering of grasping as rope burn. You know, it's like the, the rope, that the thing is slipping. It is, it is so impermanent and unstable. It is slipping through our fingers and we're holding on to it. And the burn that comes from the trying to hold on to something is slipping is the suffering. If we could not hold on to what's slipping... It doesn't mean that we don't experience it. We experience a range of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The grasping onto it, the Buddha, the Buddha clearly says it's the grasping that is the suffering. It's not what's happening. It's not the pleasant or the unpleasant or the neutral experience that is the suffering. It is the wanting to hold on to the pleasant, the wanting to push away the unpleasant that is the suffering. And so this is the wisdom that the Buddha points to. Not neglecting wisdom is about exploring this each moment, exploring it in our experience. The next uh, resolve, preserving the truth, to me connects to this wisdom there's a co- different layers of this also. I have a quote about preserving the truth. In another sutta, um, someone asks the Buddha, in what way is there the preservation of truth? How does one preserve truth? And the Buddha responds, if a person has faith or believes something, if a person has a belief One preserves truth when they say, my belief is thus. But does not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. In this way, there is preservation of truth. But there is as yet no discovery 
of truth, he says in that quote. So the preservation of truth begins with recognizing, and to me this, is, this speaks to us right now in our, in our uh, you know, present day, not only about, it, it speaks to us not only about our practice and our path, but about what's happening in the world. What does it mean to preserve the truth? Like, rather than, and this is, is asking us to explore what are our beliefs, what are our views, and to recognize them as beliefs, as views, not, not as hard and fast truth. And so this is how he says we preserve the truth, by recognizing our beliefs as beliefs. We don't have to tell ourselves not to believe them but we need to recognize they are beliefs because they, they may or may not be true, but actually elsewhere the Buddha says it's not as important whether something is true, but it is important that we know this is being believed. That gives us the opportunity then to begin to investigate. You know, if we, if we hold something as a belief rather than as truth. When, when we hold something as truth, we are simple. The, the way our system works, it's really kind of amazing that beliefs can have such a power. But um, when we hold something as a belief, it affects what we take in. And not only that, it affects the world. It affects the nature of what happens in the world when we have beliefs. And so if we don't recognize them as beliefs, we are a, a kind of unwittingly reinforcing the belief. So here is, here is a, you know, this, this was kind of an amazing study to me um, uh, on this notion of belief. Uh, I heard this on a podcast called Invisibilia. It's worth listening to if you, if you ever um, listen to podcasts. It's... Uh, um, I think it was the very first episode. And um, um, the, the, the study that they talked about was a study with mice running mazes in the lab. And they, they had um, graduate students come into the lab and they were going to be running the, the, the rats through the mazes. And um, um, they had two different populations of rats one, and they, on the cages of the, those rats, it said, these rats are a little stupid. Something like that. You know, these are not intelligent rats. And on another set, it was, these are intelligent rats. There was no difference between the rats. This was a study to see what would happen if the graduate students believed. So this is about belief. This study is about belief. If the graduate students believed the rats they were running them in the mazes, were intelligent or not, what would happen in the rats running the mazes? It was not even close. Those that were labeled as not intelligent were much, much slower in running the mazes. Now, this seems like an objective reality, right? A measure of intelligence is how fast these rats run through the mazes. But the, the rats that were labeled as intelligent did much better than the ones who were labeled as not intelligent. The, 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 um, the researchers believed that, or, you know, again, this is a belief, but the researchers um, came up with the hypothesis that the, um, the, reasons, the reason the rats in the cages that said these are not intelligence rat, intelligent rats did not run the mazes as quickly is because of how they were handled. You know, that they were treated more roughly or something like that. And so the belief in the mind affected how they did something, how they, how they acted with those animals. So these beliefs have a huge effect on our world. And if we are unaware of them as beliefs, they have a bigger effect on our world. And so this is, this is something for us to kind of be curious about. What 
are my beliefs? What am I believing? And and what is true right now? So this this question of uh, preserving the truth, um, the the Buddha says there's no yet no discovery of truth uh, by preserving the truth because in preserving the truth we are simply saying this is what I believe, this is what I don't believe. And so, but there's no yet knowing of what truth is. And again, the Buddha points not, not to truth of, like, are these rats intelligent or not? Not that kind of truth that he's interested in, but he's interested in what is the truth of experience. And so this kind of um, is what he points to as the discovery of truth. Looking at direct experience. What's actually happening right now? In the guided meditation, I, I encouraged or kind of pointed to um, becoming aware of this elemental nature of our experience, the, the sensation level of experience. We can begin to recognize the difference between the sensations and our thoughts about the sensations, our views or beliefs about the sensations. There's, so there's a... There's a this is a piece of discovering the truth is to begin to recognize what is actually happening in the experience versus what do I believe about the experience? What do I think about the experience? And so the, the discovery of truth begins to point to that side of things. That what is the actual experience in the moment here and now? The discovery of truth isn't about discovery of some proposition, of something that we say. The discovery of truth is about what is this actual experience happening right now? So another example from my own practice, and this, this is actually a really useful kind of exploration when there is some kind of reactivity happening. Um, if there's, if there's a, a frustration or a confusion or a, an anger or a desire, it can be useful to, to ask, well, what's actually happening right now? Where is that? What is that anger about? What is, the, is there a belief under that anger? And there is a belief under that anger. Whenever there's any kind of a clinging, there is something being believed. And so we can begin to... Um, uh, be curious about what's actually true right now and what's being believed right now. And if we can even just simply recognize, oh, that's what's being believed, that can help us to find our way to what is actually happening right now. What is actually true? What is the truth of this moment? What is the truth of the lived experience? So in my own practice, there was a a time I've told this story quite a bit, so many of you have may, may have heard this. Um, I was doing walking meditation on a retreat, and um, um, there were quite a few people in the walking hall, and we were you know, kind of close to each other. I experienced quite a bit of aversion doing walking meditation. I didn't like to be in a clouded, crowded room. And in that particu- on that particular day... Um, Somebody, I think it was probably snowing outside or something, it was in Massachusetts, and we were doing walking meditation, and somebody came into the room and slipped into the space between me and the next person. And we all kind of adjusted and made our way to have a little bit more space in the room, but boy, the aversion really spiked. And so I, at that point, I think I had just heard a Dharma talk where um, um, the teacher said, if there's aversion in your mind, there's something unpleasant that you're not noticing. And so I began to be curious. Well, what's actually happening here? Where is the unpleasantness? What is true here? What, what, is, what is the truth of this experience? And so I went through all of my senses. I kind of began investigating through my senses. It's like seeing. It's like, well, the seeing wasn't particularly unpleasant. There was just seeing happening. The hearing wasn't unpleasant. There, there, nobody was making much noise. There was no physical contact with anybody, so that wasn't unpleasant. I went through all the physical senses, and it was like that. The, the, the aversion didn't seem connected to any of the physical senses. And so I hypothesized, it's like, wow, it must be something in my mind. 
And I, I didn't see what it was in my mind at that point, but I just kept walking and, and said, there must be some thought in there, something that, 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 that's happening there. And, and after a few more paths of walking, the mind heard a thought said in, in this mind. It said, they're weird. That person is weird. And uh, my, my mind kind of went, well, that, that's a thought, but I still didn't quite get it. I still didn't quite see that that was a thought my mind was reacting to. A, another path later, the mind um, said something like, they've got, they, they, they've got, they're in bare feet and it's freezing cold out. And that I could see as kind of a, a belief connected with the, the thought that they were weird. I was like, that was my justification for their weird. And, and seeing that this was a belief, seeing that the entire, and, and I could see in that moment too that the whole complex of aversion was based on this idea of the person being weird, a subtle fear connected with that, and the, um, that whole idea of the weirdness was related to the person having bare feet. The whole thing fell apart when the belief was seen. The next pass, there was just a feeling of kindness for the person. And so this is the kind of investigation we can do about what's true in this moment. What was true in the moment was that the, I mean, the first feeling was that person made me angry. You know, that person made me averse. They did this thing, and, and they made me averse. But in looking more deeply, what was actually true is that it was my mind, with its thoughts and beliefs, that the aversion was in response to. When those beliefs were seen, those beliefs fell apart, the aversion fell apart. The aversion was conditioned on the belief, on the view. So this is a kind of exploration of what's true, what's actually happening right now. That's a moment-to-moment kind of exploration. And again, it's not so much about propositions. Is, is the person like really weird because they've got bare feet or not? Well, that's a matter of opinion. You know, it's, it's not truth or f- true or false. It's just an opinion. So the, um, the preservation of truth, to me, is connected with not neglecting wisdom. Because the not neglecting wisdom is the, you know, the connecting to this moment's experience and noticing what is here, what's happening here. The preserving truth brings in this question of what's being believed and investigating what's true right now. There's a, a, a quote in the suttas that says something like, that is true which has an undeceptive nature. And so we, we can practice this truthfulness not only in our experience of seeing what's true in our experience, but we can practice this truth by not being deceptive in our actions and speech. But the deepest form of the discovery of truth is not being deceived about the true nature of our experience. The true nature of our physical bodies and minds being impermanent, being unreliable as a place to land, to hold on, to cling to as a place for lasting happiness. And uh, not me, not mine, not who I am. Just process rolling on. So not deceived about the true nature of our experience. That not being deceived about the true nature of our experience, as I pointed to earlier, helps us to not grasp onto our experience. When we grasp onto our experience, we cling to our experience, that's when the rope burn happens. That's when the suffering follows. And so this is the pointing to relinquishment, cultivating relinquishment, the third of the resolves that the Buddha points to here. So again, these all follow from each other. They're deeply interconnected. 
that as we, as we become undeceived by the true nature of our experience, our mind begins to recognize it doesn't make sense to cling. And so it begins to relinquish. Relinquish the clinging. Not relinquish experience. This is a... This is a I think when we think about relinquishment or letting go, like if we're clinging to something that we want, you know, we think that what relinquishment means is saying, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to have it anymore. But what the Buddha points to is letting go of the clinging to the experience. The experience has its nature. It will appear and disappear. It will come and go. If we're clinging to it, there will be suffering. If we're not clinging to it, it's just experience that comes and goes. And so this is this cultivation of relinquishment. And as we cultivate that wisdom, we understand the beliefs that are underneath our, our uh, holding. It's really the beliefs of um, you know, the, the beliefs and views that there is something worth clinging to that creates the clinging. Much like the belief that these rats are not intelligent created a rats that ran slower in the mazes. When we believe that there's something worth clinging to, we will cling to it and we will suffer. But if we... Um, recognize that there is nothing worth clinging to. We, we start to see through the wisdom, through the, the beliefs that the, the clinging is the suffering. Experience comes and goes. It's the clinging that creates the struggle, that creates the suffering. As the mind begins to relinquish the clinging... That relinquishment is peace. That's the definition of peace in the Buddha's teachings. It's defined in one place as the cooling of desire. And in another, one finds peace through freedom from grasping. And again, you know, the cooling of desire, I spoke to this earlier, you know, that we think somehow that if we don't, if we, if we don't desire something in this way of, of like wanting to hold on to it, that we would never do anything. But there are so many different motivations for our actions. Those based in grasping and those based in an open heart, in love, in compassion, in wisdom, in kindness. And so this... Um, the movement towards peace is about letting go of grasping, not about not acting. This is, this is a, a kind of something that we have to wrap our minds around as we, begin to, as we begin to explore this relinquishment. We are not asked to relinquish love and wisdom and kindness and patience and joy. We're asked to relinquish the clinging even clinging to love and patience and kindness and joy. Because if we cling to love and patience and kindness and joy and equanimity, we get the rope burned because those two are conditioned. Those two are coming and going. And so the, the training for peace really is connected to, again, the not neglecting wisdom and the preservation of truth, the discovery of truth, what's actually true in this, more, in this moment. As we discover what's true in this moment, the truth of the non-deceptive nature of experience, that it's not reliable, it's impermanent, our mind relinquishes the grasping and experiences the peace. And yet, as I said at the beginning, the whole of this path, I mean, the, the, this is the direction. We aim in the direction of peace. But I think it was, I think the Dalai Lama said something like, there is no path to peace. Peace is the path. This very much reflects 
this whole um, journey with these resolves, with these trainings or these resolutions, not neglecting wisdom, preserving the truth, cultivating relinquishment and training for peace. What does it mean to train for peace? Well, some of it is to not neglect wisdom and preserve the truth. But another piece of, another part of training for peace is to behave peacefully, even if we're not feeling it. I think I said earlier that, you know, to become kind, we can behave with kindness. To become peaceful, we can behave peacefully. This works in a, in a particularly, um, uh, it works in a way because, um, not because we're trying to put on something that's not here, but because of an intention to head in a direction. So if we have the intention to head towards peace, we pick up that intention. We may not be feeling peace in the moment, but picking up that intention for peace, then, as I said earlier in the, in, in, in the, a few minutes ago, if we're not feeling peaceful, if we're feeling angry or frustrated, we're probably not going to be able to change our minds in a moment and say, oh, let me be peaceful right now. But we can change our minds to act peacefully and be mindful of non-peace. Be mindful of the anger or the aversion or the confusion or the desire. Be aware of it and not act on it. Because it's impermanence, impermanent, in this case the impermanence works in our favor. Anger arises. If we're not clinging to it, if we're not feeding it or fueling it, it will arise and pass in dependence on conditions. In the field of mindfulness, these states can arise and pass. And then as something like anger falls away, if you are there, if you are aware when something like anger falls away, you will feel the relinquishment as peace when that anger ends. You will get that hit. You will get that direct sense of the truth of the ending of the grasping is peace. And so this again, we see through being present, being here now. And so the entirety of our resolves on the path are, what do we do right now? How are we right now? Am I aiming towards peace? Am I training in peace? Am I training in kindness? Am I training in wisdom? And we will forget. And in the moment when when the mindfulness returns, there we have the opportunity to once again be with those resolves. And not just say, oh, I forgot it for a few minutes, so it's forget it, it's hopeless. The only way this continues is if we pick up those resolves again when the mindfulness returns. And so it's very much a lived practice, living with these resolves. So there's a couple minutes if there's any comments or thoughts or reflections on any of this. Questions? Yeah. Could you use the mic? Thank you. It's a beautiful reminder of the new year. And um, so the the word honoring honor came up for me about. I said, okay, okay. I want to cling to these wonderful moments when I, I bring my say my dog who's a therapy dog to visit elders and and smiles open from people who are dementia and. I, am I clinging, or can I? Is it okay to honor? Absolutely, honor it. Okay. I mean, that's 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 something I think too. We 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 misunderstand. Yeah. Is like you know the the being mindful of that delight and that joy is a form of honoring it, yeah. and it's not clinging to it's it. Not clinging. I it, think that's. We might be clinging to it, but you know, it's yeah. like if you're not feeling the suffering of the clinging it's in a that moment, kind of don't worry about it. <laughs> 
Okay, that's good to know. It's okay to, to feel like it's an honoring moment. Sort of yeah, it's okay to feel good, yes. Thank <laughs> Absolutely. <you. laughs> these, these wholesome qualities feel really good. Yeah, yeah. And they actually end up feeling better when they're not clung to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you. Thanks. Any other comments or reflections? Okay, so let's just sit for a moment together and maybe let these resolves sink in or in this way of just being here, present. What's true right now? This body, these sensations, these sounds, the truth of the experience. And recognizing if there's any beliefs or maybe curious, are there any beliefs, views, ideas, opinions? And just recognizing them, preserving the truth. This is being believed. And exploring what's here, what's actually here. Thank you for your attention and Happy New Year. Year.